I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Nippon Steel, Digital Trade, and TTC, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're back, and we're here to talk about steel, amongst other things. Let's talk about Nippon Steel. And guys, I know, Bill, that you have quite a bit to say about this. I believe this is going to be the subject of a forthcoming column, so you're going to give us a little taste of it here. But what? why are some members of Congress concerned about the Nippon Steel deal, and how have they proposed blocking it? And what is it? Wait, first, what, what is it? Well, Nippon Steel has proposed to buy U.S. Steel. Uh, it's a straight up, actually, all cash acquisition. There was another offeror, which was uh, U.S. Steel's main domestic competitor, Cleveland Cliffs, which raises on the, on the side, you know, there's an underlying kind of antitrust competition issue here. Because if Cleveland Cliffs bought them, I think a lot of people would say that's really going to reduce domestic competition in steel. With, uh, uh, you know, Nippon coming in, it's a, it, that issue goes away, but it raises a different issue, which is, you know, a foreigner taking over what is an iconic American company. I mean, this was started by Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller and uh, J.P. Morgan, as I recall, back in the 19th century. It's uh, been declining in size and value ever since. But it's still an iconic company. And the immediate reaction, not from the president, but uh, who's been temperate about this, but an immediate reaction from relevant politicians, namely Senator Casey in Pennsylvania and Senator Brown in Ohio, both of whom are running for uh, re-election, was this is outrageous, we have to stop it. Senator Vance from Ohio, who's not running for anything right now, said the same thing. And I'm sure there were members of the House that said the same thing. The administration, partly, I think, out of of a sense of responsibility, because it has to conduct the process, said exactly what they were supposed to say, which is, and and Leo Brainerd, the chair of the, uh, I guess, the Domestic Policy Council said it, which is, you know, this is an important issue that raises national security questions, and we're going to take it seriously and study it. End of story. There is nobody I know that believes the decision on this is going to be made before the election. And when I say decision, I mean, because this is a foreign acquisition of a U.S. company, it has to be reviewed by CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And that's a statutory process. Nippon Steel has been upfront from the beginning and saying that they're going to file and they're going to go through the process. I mean, they don't have a lot of choice, but sometimes people try to skirt around the rules and they haven't done that. They haven't actually filed yet, uh, unless they did it uh, as we're talking, but apparently that's coming soon. The clock doesn't start ticking until they do. But even if the clock starts ticking, it doesn't matter because, you know, if the administration wants to stretch this out, which I think they will, they'll just have the CFIUS people go back to Nippon and, and say, well, this is complicated and we're studying it. We need more time. Why don't you withdraw your application and then refile it later? And we'll let you know when later is a go when later comes around. And that stops the clock. And then it starts over at zero. 
when they refile. So most people think this is going to go past the election. It's going to be, if this were a fact-based, merit-based decision, it would probably be kind of easy because the criterion for blocking an acquisition is solely national security. And you have to, the, the, the president, or CFIUS has to, well, the president would have to determine that uh, the acquisition is poses a threat to U.S. national security. I think most people, including me, would say uh, that's a very hard decision to make, first of all, because it's Japan. You know, it's not China. It's not Russia. Uh, it's not somebody, it's, you know, it's somebody that we have a very close relationship with, uh, including, uh, you know, a defense cooperation agreement. Uh, so it's very hard to make the national security case on that grounds. And we've already had the, the debate in the Trump administration about whether steel is a national security industry or not. I would say, having spent a lot of time on this when I was back on the Hill working for Senator Hines, who spent a lot of his time trying to save the steel industry from the crises it was experiencing then, that part of the industry is related, relevant to national security, and part of it probably isn't. It appears that U.S. Steel doesn't make any of the things that are particularly relevant to national security. So, you know, on the merits, it's a hard case to uh, reject. The interesting thing about this, of course, is the decision is not going to be made on the merits. It's going to be made on the politics. And I think the company understand, both companies, I think, understand that. And in this case, the politics are very simple. You know, what does the union want to do? Because what Biden is going to do is go along with what the United Steel Workers want. The United Steel Workers so far have been uh, negative, skeptical. I wouldn't say they've shut the door completely. And we'll see what will happen. I think basically the union, I think, can go two ways. And there's precedent for both. One way is just fall on their sword and say, we're against it. We don't want any foreigners running our steel companies. End of story, period. And if they if they persist in that, my guess is that, that the administration will block the transaction, but still after the election. The precedent to look at that's more interesting is what Trumpka did on, with the AFL-CIO on the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement. Trumpka, not Trump. Right, Trumpka. Uh, on uh, the late Trumpka, I'm sorry to say. On the USMCA agreement, where he basically said, much more elegantly this, we can be bought, you know, and here's what we want. And he had a list of changes he wanted made in the agreement. And uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and the House uh, were able, uh, House of Representatives, were able to accommodate a lot of them. And in the end, the AFL-CIO either supported or didn't oppose the agreement. I forget which. But that was enough to get it to, um, what, nearly 400 votes. Biggest margin in, ever for a trade agreement. So I think what Trumpka realized was there was, you know, you could gain here if you wanted to play the game. And parenthetically, the environmentalists played it the opposite way. And they just came out and opposed the treaty, the USMCA agreement. And Lighthizer's attitude, which was, entirely predictable, this is exactly, you knew he was going to say this, was, well, if you're going to oppose the deal, why should I talk to you? You know, I got nothing to gain, and that was the end of that talk. But Trump didn't do that. So I think if the steelworkers come come up eventually, I mean, there's not a hurry here, okay, but if they come up eventually and say, let's talk to the company about what they're willing to do for us, then we'll see. The company has already said, company meaning Nippon, has already said, They'll basically, they'll hold the workers out harmless. They'll honor the existing contracts and so on and so forth. That, I think, won't be the issue. The issue will be the extent to which U.S. steel, the new, you know, acquired U.S. steel, shifts 
its attention and resources to its uh, electric arc furnaces in Alabama and away from its blast furnaces in primarily Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois. You know, the blast furnaces are old technology. The electric arc furnaces are new technology. So you can make an argument for going with the new technology. That's complicated because I think most analysts in the industry will tell you the electric uh, arc furnace technology is based on melting scrap. That We don't have enough scrap to meet entirely all of our steel demand. So there's going to be a need for old line blast furnaces, I think, for a long time. There are upgrades and improvements in that, te that technology that Nippon could undertake. And I think it's said publicly they're willing to uh, or planning to undertake. The union's interest in this is because the Alabama plant is non-union and the uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois plants are union. The union's first priority is take care of their guys. Uh, and their guys are in the north at the blast furnaces. So I think what they're going to want Nippon to, to do is spell out, you know, what commitments they're willing to make to keep those, those factories going. And then, you know, if they cut a deal, it'll be interesting to see what happens because you've got Trump who yesterday said, no way, I'll, you know, I'll veto it instantaneously. Union continues to oppose it. That's probably what will happen. Probably what Biden will do. But, you know, if the union cuts a deal and announces they're in support, what does Trump do? You know, he's now in the position of opposing a deal that the workers he intends to protect are saying is a good deal. And the, and the Biden administration has simply said, we need to study this further. They haven't committed one way or another. That's right. And I think regardless of the politics of it, I, they kind of have to say that because there's a process. You know, there's, the CFIUS is a, is a matter of law now. Uh, and uh, you, have, you file, and then there's a certain number of days they get to think about it. And then if they recommend uh, rejection, there's a certain number of days the president gets to think about it. I mean, it's a legal process, and I think the president is, any president, is constitutionally obligated to respect the process. So, you know, he said the only thing he could say at this point, but it's also the smart thing to say, uh, because it, basically what you want to do if you're Biden, I think, is wait and see what happens and wait and see if there is a negotiation, wait and see if the union and the company make a deal and then make an informed decision about what you want to do. I mean, he could still reject it even if there's a deal, but I think it would be foolish for him to make a decision before that that process is played out. And the goal here seems to be kick the can down the road till after the election so we don't have to deal with the optics of a foreign company, even an ally like Japan, taking over a symbolic U.S. company like U.S. Steel. That, that sums it up very well. And I think one of the problems the union will have to deal with down the road is that and we've seen this on other occasions, there's a, often a gap between union leadership and union rank and file. Uh, and you'll see it in the election. Uh, you know, the union, a lot of the unions, so far most of them are gonna endorse Biden or have endorsed Biden. There's gonna be a boatload of steel workers, my guess is who will vote for Trump anyway, despite their leadership's endorsement. I can see this playing out in a way where uh, the union, man, union leadership uh, makes a deal and announces it and says this is a good agreement, and you still got a whole bunch of steel workers who don't agree with that. I mean, you saw this in the UAW case. That wasn't a foreign acquisition, it was, a, but it was a contract negotiation. And you know, they cut a deal. The leadership said this is a good deal, 
And in the end, a majority of the UAW supported it, but there were a couple plants that, that rejected it. And so, you know, in a democracy, you get to do that. But, you know, one of the things the union, the Steelworkers Union, which is a fairly democratic union, as you think, in the sense that the workers have a voice in what goes on, the union's going to have to keep this in mind as it goes forward. You know, you've got this, you know, the, the eternal problem of the, of the leader turning around and discovering he has no followers. Uh, and then figuring out what are we supposed to do at, at that point. So the union has to make sure that, that, you know, the workers are on board with what it wants to do. And then and if they succeed, that the workers stay on board. And, and uh, you know, the price of a deal from Nippon's point of view is, you know, if we're going to give you what you want, you got to support the deal. you got to support the, the acquisition. Scott, you're a good union man. What do you think about all this? <laughs> Well, my my advice to uh, Senator Brown and Senator Vance, I just I'll make a make an Ohio reference because I'm, <laughs> I'm more uh, I'm more loyal Ohioan than I am a uh, loyal union man. Yeah. But I'd like I'd advise them to take a deep breath and visit Toledo, uh, because about 15 years ago, another iconic brand was in trouble. Brand was Jeep. Uh, in the 2009 financial crisis, the auto industry sought the help of the government, and what happened to the Chrysler brands, including the very valuable Jeep brand produced in Toledo, Ohio, was that they were acquired by, at that time, an Italian company, another G7 member, and uh, another example of friend shoring, maybe you might want to say. Today, uh, the ownership of that of Jeep is Stellantis, which I believe is headquartered in Holland. I think it's Dutch. Uh, the Netherlands, Holland. yeah. So so it's a Dutch company, but still is a foreign-owned enterprise, another friend of, 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 of the United States. And... It seems to be working fine. I think for some perspective ought to be held here because already you're saying wants- you're saying Jeep is is even though Jeep is owned by a foreign company now, it's as American as ever. It's the the brand is solid. It's made in it's made in America. The Toledo factory has been rebuilt. I mean, it's it's an amazing turnaround, and that's that's why one of the differences between China and the United States is we have an open investment policy, so we can attract foreign investment to rebuild these iconic products and brands uh, in a way that's good for consumers and good for the shareholders. And good for made in America. Well, yes, definitely. Now, look, uh, Nippet Steel has already promised to keep United States Steel's headquarters in Pittsburgh, and they bought these U.S. assets for a very specific reason. And I want to get into that reason for buying these assets, which is between the Trump tariffs, 25% tariffs on steel, and the Biden administration's industrial policy, specifically the infrastructure bill and the hilariously named Inflation Reduction Act with preferences for domestic steel. There's huge demand at, at premium prices for domestic steel that can't be supplied by, by Nippon Steel on an import basis. So it would find very attractive the opportunity to purchase U.S. production facilities, which is exactly what they've done here. And it's why Nippon Steel are offered roughly twice the amount per share than Cleveland Cliffs offered for U.S. steel. And I agree with Bill's comments about there were some serious antitrust issues with the Nissan Steel. With, I'm sorry, with the serious antitrust issues with the Cleveland Cliffs acquisition that never really were analyzed because the deal fell apart. But those don't exist with Nippon Steel, which has a very small footprint in North America, despite them being the second largest steel company in the world. Uh, so, look, I'm for the survival of American steel. But I would do it through the kind of technology that that Nippon Steel can bring to the deal that certainly hasn't been brought by the current management. And I would, you know, use this opportunity since we're going to 
have expensive steel in the United States. That's the policy of both the Trump administration with the tariffs and the Biden administration with the preferences. Then why not get the best technology, which happens in the ownership? And in this case, it's foreign ownership. So uh, I would say there are many advantages to this. There's a real reason for it. But if you're gonna if you're gonna prop up the market the way they've done with tariffs, prop up steel prices specifically with tariffs and and, and preferences in construction, then what you ought to do is do it with the best technology, which wasn't coming from the company as it currently existed. So I think there are reasons to support the deal. None of these will matter, of course, because I think Bill's got the politics right. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about the politics. So the Biden administration has made, has rendered, made in America a very big part of their policy. If Nippon, the sale goes through, what does this do to made in America? Does it still stay made in America? I think so, yes. The, those those rules remain the same. The tariffs remain in place. So that it, it has to be U.S. manufactured. It's just who owns the facilities. It's not about who makes it or where it, the location of production. It's still going to be made in America. Just like cheap. Just like cheap. That, that's why they. That's why Senator Brown and Senator Vance should both do a tour of the Jeep facilities this weekend. I want to do a tour of the Jeep facilities because, like, I think a Jeep might be in my future. They don't give you one for free when you take the tour. <laughs> Well, you like, well, it's you not know, like going to a winery where you where you get where you get a bottle at the end or a glass at the end, but there's so always so much emotion about these. So things. I, I want to say though, I want to say for the record that we in the Schwartz family we own currently one Jeep that my middle son is driving over the insane roads in New Orleans, Louisiana, while he is studying at my alma mater, and now his school, Tulane University. Jeep owners are so loyal. Yeah. And it, it's a great asset. And uh, we were happy to have uh, the Italians uh, take it over. Well, I think the Italians who own Jeep should sponsor the trade guys. Well, the Dutch. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be in contact. Okay. We'll have your people contact our people. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I hope where your son is living is on high ground. He is. He is on higher ground indeed. Tulane is higher ground. I mean, it's all relative, of course, in New Orleans. Anyway, but. what I was going to say, I was working for Senator Rockefeller when the Japanese bought Rockefeller Center. And uh, I mean, the family didn't have a connection to it at the time, but I mean, he wasn't all that happy about it. Uh, but I pointed out, as you can point out when this, you know, the Chinese farmland scare, you know, the, the Japanese were not going to pick up the building and move it to Tokyo. And they're not, they're not moving the Granite City, Illinois steel plant to Japan. You know, it's going to stay here. It's going to be American-made steel. It's exactly what Scott said. So the union, I think, is has got the you know the, the issue right. Where their interest is, you know, are we going to be able to keep our jobs, and is, or is the company going to do things that will cost us jobs? Which meant are they going to lay a bunch of people off and cut costs and shrink the size of the company, which has been known to happen in other cases, uh, or are they going to simply devote? much more of their internal investment to what's going on in, in Alabama, and they're going to let the blast furnaces atrophy. And I think that's what's going to drive the negotiation. And Nippon Steel, I think, is perfectly prepared to have that discussion. I don't know where it'll come out. But, and that's the right discussion to have. You know, it's what the union ought to be doing is worrying about, you know, what's going to happen to its workers. That's their job. Okay, let's pivot. Now we're talking, we've been talking United States. Let's talk USEU. TTC. Guys, what's the latest there? There's been negotiations. What about this latest round of TTC? 
success story or just more talking? Well, they're on the uh, futile search for deliverables, as best I can tell. Uh, okay. that, that, well, and because they've they've reached the point where all the polite information sharing has occurred. Okay, and they have to deal with the fact that there there aren't easy problems left to solve between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, some of this is just a, a matter of the way the economies have developed. You compare Europe to North America; the landmass is roughly the same. But uh, the European continent has about the same landmass as the North American continent. There are three sovereigns in the North American continent, Mexico, Canada, uh, United States. There are 52 nation states in Europe. And what that leads to is a condition of where almost every Euro initiative has a secondary theme. And the theme is solving some intra-European problem. Because with 52 sovereigns, there are many. Okay. Uh, there are not that many members of the European Union, and there are some simplifications and other matters that come to fore. But that that's a fundamental distinction between the the, the way what constitutes a problem that's solved, uh, and one of the results is that it's very difficult to harmonize regulation. It's very difficult to hammer out these agreements in a way that's satisfactory to the U.S. Uh, the Europe has a has a penchant for being the first mover on all new regulation. And therefore, the first mover having what they see as a first mover advantage in the regulations themselves. On the other hand, I think the American edge is innovation happens in the U.S. because things are allowed to happen. For instance, I just had a discussion with a student group at American University, and we talked about scooters. There are these electric scooters all over Washington D.C. There, there actually a few littering the front of the sidewalk in front of the condo I live in. In North Carolina, so they're everywhere. You're in front of CSIS too. Yeah, they're everywhere. Okay, and the the thing is, when those scooters were introduced, they were somebody's idea, and there wasn't a single village, town, city, county in America that had made any sort of ordinances about scooters. It was white space. It was open space, and a lot of market experimentation happens in those open spaces. Now, sooner or later, the regulations come. The the, the ordinances get passed. Uh, but uh, but it's one of those things, the, that that space to innovate is present here, and uh, and usually not in Europe because of their penchant for sort of pre-regulation. But in, there are a lot of other reasons, which I'm sure Bill can go into at length, having suffered through many of these along with me, uh, from the private sector. Well, I think the interesting question is is um, whether uh, it's going to have the same. And as the, all the previous transatlantic dialogues have had, virtually every president except Trump, going back to the, I think, the elder Bush at least, had a dialogue, a transatlantic dialogue of some sort. They all had different names. And this is the TTC. And most of them kind of drifted off into irrelevance after a few years. They didn't accomplish very much. And what would happen is, you know, the, the ministerial level people would stop showing up and staff would show up. And that was a sure sign that nothing was going to happen. And then, you know, the administration would change and then it would start all over again, uh, but start all over from scratch. There wasn't a lot of continuity. Uh, our, our CSIS colleague, Emily Benson, at one point early on said that she was giving the, the TTC six meetings, you know, and then we'll see. Well, uh, number six is coming up. The one when they had uh, last week was number five. And the interesting thing is that number six is coming up very soon. And number four was in May and number five was in January. So what is that? Eight months apart. And now uh, the, the gap between number five and number six 
It's only three months. At least it's going to be in April uh, in Belgium because they have the EU presidency this this half year. And it was hard to keep a straight face through some of this because I I was at a meeting where somebody asked one of the, the uh, government, U.S. government uh, representatives what the, their plans were for the fifth meeting. And the answer was, well, basically, it's preparation for the sixth meeting, uh, getting, you know, winding, you know, preparing for deliverables. And, you know, I, everybody was polite, didn't point out that that's what they said about the fourth meeting, that it was prepped for the fifth meeting. And it was what they said about the third meeting, that it was prepped for the fourth meeting. So this pot has been cooking for a long time. And uh, it's also generally agreed that the sixth meeting will be the last, at least for a while, because there's two elections coming up. The European Parliament election in June uh, to be followed by the decision on, on you know, the next commission president and the next commission cabinet, you know, in the American election in November. And the operating assumption, which I think is correct, is that there's not going to be another TTC meeting uh, until after both of those. And what happens will then depend really on, yeah, on who wins the elections. It'll depend on whether the new commission wants to continue it, and it'll depend on whether the U.S. president wants to continue it. If the US, next U.S. president is Biden, I think the answer will probably be yes. If the next U.S. president is Trump, I think the answer will probably be no, uh, because he's not proven himself to be very interested in well, bilateral or multilateral structures that they use words like cooperation and working together. And yeah, that's definitely not his jam. No. So the sixth one is it's sort of the put up or shut up one uh, in April. And we'll see. You know, they've done one big thing in the three plus years they've been in business. And that is the collective agreement on Russia sanctions when after they invaded Ukraine. And that was an extraordinarily significant accomplishment. I mean, it really was impressive. And I give Biden a lot of credit for it. It was uh, really was the U.S., I think, that put it together. One of the, uh, Matt Borman at the Commerce Department did a lot of the basic grunt work of, you know, developing the details of the sanctions and spent a lot of time in Brussels to do it. Extraordinary effort. That's about it. You know, they've talked about cooperation on other things. There was a brief flurry of activity Two weeks before the TTC meeting, or I guess one week before this this last this last meeting, where one of the Europeans said we're really going to focus on mutual recognition and mutual recognition agreements. That would be very important uh, if it happened, because you know this is a, a, a regulatory issue. Uh, we have food safety standards. Well, I could get, do another chicken rat, but you know we have uh, food safety standards for chickens. The EU has food safety chicken standards for chickens, they're different. We have standards for safety belts and how they have to be you know, fastened into the automobiles. The Europeans have st the standards for safety belts and they're different. But in all these cases, the goal is the same. You know, let's not have any sick chickens uh, or safety belts that come loose. It's the same goal. And, and we both seem to be pretty good at achieving those goals through our standards. Why can't we recognize each other's standards and simply say, you know, a car with U.S. conforming safety belts doesn't have to be retested or reconfigured by safety belts to be sold in Europe. Same with chickens. You know, if you've if they pass the health inspection in the U.S., then that's good enough for Europe. We can't seem to get there on anything. 
except uh, I think some veterinary issues, which is what TTC4, I think, accomplished, was to actually produce a mutual recognition agreement. So if we could expand that, that would be really good and useful and trade promoting. There was no statement issued after the TTC. We, I, as of this point, I don't know if that happened or not. My guess is not. And so we will now wait till April to see if there are any uh, tangible benefits. There's nothing like a good Bill Wright's chicken rant. I will spare you the rant. You've all heard it before. All right, we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk quickly about USTR's policy on digital trade. Catherine Tai just made some statements in Brussels. What about this, Scott? Well, it looks like uh, the United States is not going to protect the United States' own economic interests. And it appears to be mostly driven by politics. We've talked about it before. There is a there are diversity of views in the Democratic Party on this issue. There's a very strong view coming from the progressive wing of the party that uh, that the the big tech's market size and and sort of bigness is a problem and not a, not an advantage. And uh, they would uh, like to use any international form available to take big tech down a peg or two. Uh, it's probably as cloaked in better language than that, but that's that's the idea. In which case, uh, you have a, a, a high-growing, profitable, dynamic American industry based in American innovation, leading the world, and no defenders in the international trading system, since no one else is going to look after our interests. So, a little concerning, and I imagine the industry is quite concerned. Bill, there's a quote from uh, Ambassador Tai that sort of baffles me. This is referring to the meeting that Scott mentioned. What she said was, we have a massive problem with concentration in the technology field around those people who are collecting the data, have access to the data. This has become an enormous issue that we have to grapple with in trade in an area where the trade disciplines, the trade representative, and the antitrust enforcers have been thrown into each other's roles. And I just find myself baffled by that. I don't think anybody threw her into the antitrust enforcement role. I think she walked into it voluntarily. Uh, and in the view of a lot of people, other people in the administration, unnecessarily, you know, if we have a concentration problem in this country in, in high tech, which I think is debatable, but if we do, there are other places to solve that. You know, the Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission uh, is, are the places you go to work on that. And they're the people that can order the companies to change their behavior or, you know, divide them up or whatever they decide to do. Trying to go after uh, a what you perceive to be a structural problem in the U.S. economy through trade policy just makes absolutely no sense to me. And I, I think it's enormously counterproductive because what they're doing in effect by doing it in trade policy, you know, is, is they're handicapping our companies. You know, the, the companies that, uh, in particular, the Europeans, are the Europeans are going after our companies, and by the, the big ones, Google, uh, Amazon, Meta, you know, the companies like that, Apple, they're going after them. And we've talked about this in the a while back, you know, I think in the misguided belief that, that uh, somehow that's going to encourage the development of, of competitive alternatives within Europe. Uh, the reality is all it's going to do is hand market share to the Chinese who, companies who have not been identified as, as subject to some of the European legislation, the Digital Markets Act in particular. Uh, so 
uh, you know, the Europeans are, are, you know, help inadvertently helping the Chinese at our expense. Uh, and when Ambassador Tai is now basically telling the Europeans is go ahead. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you guys. And uh, maybe the United States Congress ought to have a role here, given given that Article One grants them the power to regulate foreign commerce. Uh, Man, and maybe the ambassador ought to talk to talk to them, but uh, that's hard. There's a wonderful story about this that goes back a ways, but it, during the Reagan administration, uh, Reagan imposed extraterritorial sanctions on foreign companies that were helping to build Russian gas pipelines into Europe. He was prescient, actually. He turned out to be right about that, that uh, getting gas from Russia would endanger uh, Europe, Western Europe's security. I mean, it took 40 years for that to become true, but turned out to be right. But he was extraterritorially sanctioning British and French and other companies uh, who were helping build the pipelines. And finally, I think this is, this is not apocryphal. I think this is a true story. Finally, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher called him up and said, he said, look, Ronnie, these are, uh, these are my companies. These are not your companies. You can't tell them what to do. I get to tell them what to do. And this is sort of the same thing now. These are our companies, you know, and we shouldn't be letting the Europeans uh, tell them what to do. But in addition, if we're going to regulate our companies, we ought to be doing it through the domestic process that Scott just talked about. We ought to be doing it through Congress, and we ought to be doing it through executive branch agencies that actually have jurisdiction. Uh, we shouldn't be doing it through trade policy. Great session as always. We will be back next week to talk more trade. But in the meantime, thanks so much for all the great insight today. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.